Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. So today we are here together with amazing guests as usual from the Central Florida area. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about religion and sex. So I will let, as always, um, my guests introduce themselves uh, and hear a little bit more about what, what organization they're with and what do they do within that organization. So my name is Jen Styles williams I am, I go by the pronouns of she, her, and I'm with St. Luke's United Methodist Church. I'm the lead pastor there. Hi, I'm Kinthea H. Arrington, Pastor K, as my flock call me and friends. I uh, pastor of Judah Kingdom Life Ministries, and uh, I serve people, serve humanity. That's wonderful to hear. And then we also have another guest. Uh, my name is Daniel Garner Quintero. I'm a licensed mental health counselor here at the University of Central Florida with Counseling and Psychological Services. And my pronouns are he, him, and his. Wonderful. Thank you, all of you, to be with us today and have a conversation for our Central Florida and beyond um, audience. Can we get started with a little bit of our cafe setting today? What beverages are we having I'm having a lovely Earl Grey. I'm having a dark roast coffee with hazelnut flavoring. I'm just having a giant unsweetened iced tea <laughs> with yes. extra ice. Yes, that's that's a little refreshing for for this weather that is starting to warm up. Oh my gosh, it's so hot out there. Right? Yeah. Suddenly we went from yes. the hoodies to spring to summer. <laughs> So let's get started a little bit with uh, the concepts of religion, right? So the American Psychological Association defines it as a system of spiritual beliefs, practices, or both that typically organize around the worship of an all-powerful deity or deities, it can be plural, and invo involves behaviors such as prayer, meditation, participation, and collective rituals. So let's get started with the religions that we have represented today at the table. Can you tell us a little bit about the basic tenets of your of your religious system? And then we will start guiding it towards religion and sexuality. So some of the basic tenets that someone who is not familiar with your faith might need to know. Okay, so I'll start. <laughs> sure. So I come from a Christian denomination. Um, we're United Methodist. And um, basic understanding of who we are in relationship to with God is created in the image of God, um, formed fully in the image of God. Um, my particular denomination doesn't believe in total depravity, um, so we don't believe that um, original sin marred us and pulled that image of God out of us, but that the image of God is still within us and that God is constantly drawing us in and nurturing that um, belovedness um, so that particularly through us, through Christ, that is reconciled, that relationship is reconciled. Um, um, and that we are fully formed and from the very beginning of the, the, the this creation story is a love story, um, not to be read literally, but both the first story of creation and the second story of creation, both of which are, are humanity created in wholeness. Um, and fullness and a full relationship with one another, a full relationship with themselves, a full relationship with God um, in which there's no shame, um, there's mutual respect. And so that's kind of the origin of that. And then I would say for us as Methodists, the rest of our understanding of faith is based more on grace rather than sin and shame. Um, and this understanding that through Christ we have this fullness of reconciliation um, and we live into that grace every day. And we can explain grace a little bit as, as good standing? Grace as in charity, kindness, goodness, love, ultimately love, and and the places where we fail or fall short of the fullness of who we are or the fullness of relationship with others. It's a, a grace and love and a sacrificial opportunity um, that comes to us without merit um, that goes between us and, and provides restoration. Oh, well, um, I come from a very traditional church, religious background and, and a group of believers. Um, and I can say we have so many denominations, but the basic tenets are the same that, of course, um, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. But through Christ Jesus, the remedy 
the remedy of love and forgiveness is uh, there. He, he gave his life. Christ gave his life so that we all can have life and that more abundantly. But we all stand equally uh, born into sin. Our nature is to have what we want when we want it, how we want it, you know, and the struggle is to how do you reconcile that with a holy God when we have a lot of what we would say is unholy appetites, you know, mm -hmm. so. But through Christ Jesus, there is grace, the unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We have to receive it through uh, Christ's sacrifice of love. wonderful as well. Um, and it's very interesting how there's some overlap and there's also some differences as well as we are having this discussion. Now, why, uh, to bring you into the conversation, Daniel, why is it important that we as humans actually have that relationship or that idea with, uh, of connection with a higher being? I don't think it is for everybody. Um, I have, I, I know a lot of people, I have a lot of clients that identify uh, as atheist and their, their focus at that point is much more on their kind of connection to humanity. And I imagine the people who would identify as kind of religious or spiritual would say that probably is kind of their deism. Um, but I don't think that they would kind of speak about it that way. I think for a lot of people, um, religion can offer a place of hope. It can help them make sense of uh, terrible events that occur around the world. Sometimes it can kind of confuse that situation even more, actually. Um, but in, in some ways, it, it kind of um, aids in their resiliency as they kind of traverse life. Um, and I think that's probably the greatest thing that religion can offer people is this kind of anchor. Um, so I think that's kind of what I would say as it relates to why so it matters or why it's important. Regardless of, of uh, affiliation or spirituality or religion, um, probably the the whole human need for connection, whether it's to a higher being or whether it's to other humans, would be kind of the common denominator that we see that we need to have that sense of connection or that to make meaning of our time here on Earth, I guess. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think relationship is probably kind of a foundational thing. Like, even if we step past the, you know, I'm sure that the, the ladies at the table would, would bring a lot of kind of spirituality into it. But just looking at it from her pure neuroscience perspective, we are wired for connection. Mm -hmm. um, so even at kind of our most basic kind of levels, we are better and together well, right? than we are As isolated. Then when it comes to human sexuality, are there any basic tenets that probably your churches? I know people would say, or, or the first idea out there for our listeners might be all the no-nos that a, a, a church might tell you about don'ts and don'ts, but there's also I'm pretty sure there's also do's and expectations regarding human sexuality, relationships, procreation. All of these uh, general tenets of sexual reproductive health might come into place as well, right? So it's interesting because I'm in a denomination, and and Kathy, I agree with you. You know, for us too, Jesus is the way that shows us what sacrificial love and grace is, and and we always say at the beginning of our wedding ceremonies that it's that it's it's his sacrificial love that sets up the love of marriage and and what that looks like or relationship. I would say relationships of any kind, as Daniel talked about. Um, my denomination is so in the middle of possibly splitting over this idea of human sexuality. Well, not possibly splitting, we are. Um, I call it replication, but we'll call it splitting. Um, because in one place in our social principles, it says very distinctly, and I have it in front of me, we affirm that sexuality is God's good gift to all persons. We call everyone responsible to the stewardship of that sacred gift. It says all people are created in the image of God and are of sacred worth. But then we move into this understanding of sexuality can only be between a man and a woman, or, 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 or um, marriage can be only between a man and a woman. We, we start to parse out what that sacredness and worth looks like, which is where our denomination for 50 years has struggled. Um, when a more conservative kind of movement happened across America that kind of came into our denomination. And uh, we're at a place where, where we can't stand 
the the struggle anymore with one another and we need to bless each other because one groups read scripture in a more literal way another group doesn't um, reads it more of in a historical contextual understanding and and love and sexuality is very much at the center of this and so it's interesting because i come from a progressive side that says everyone is of sacred worth period that there's no more to be said about that and that includes all understandings of human sexuality um, and all understandings of marriage. Um, but down the street is a church that doesn't agree with me on that. So it's it's an interesting question to answer for me. I would love to answer like um, uh, the uh, Katanji, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was asked, you know, what's a female? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, you know, but but in her response, she was trying to be so politically safe and correct because, yeah, right now in this climate, in, in our society, this new world, you know, basically, uh, as she answered, I'm not a biologist, you know. Um, but again, I come from traditional teachings of the Bible, and there are some people who take it as black and white. There's no deviating from it. Uh, scriptures that say, um, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one comma sentence of my word would pass away. And so my, my congregation and th those that I belong to and fellowship with believe basically that, of course, God made male and female. And, um, you know, he blessed them to be fruitful in Genesis and to multiply. Um, now, um, I work at, of course, the center, and I worked in HIV and uh, be trying to become a tester. I had my church thinking about this Sunday. I said, one of the questions on the, the test uh, or, or the form that you fill out for, for those who are being tested is, what were you considered at birth? And they have to answer male or female. But then it says now, but how do you now recognize yourself? And so we, we are, we're dealing with that reality. You know, uh, my job as a pastor, again, is to teach what the Bible says, but also to have the grace to understand that, you know, sex is happening between not just male and female, <laughs> people are having sex, male and male and, and female, female, people are having sex. How do I navigate the grace of God in that conversation? Well, it's one-on-one, it's -on -one, and I can only share what I believe Scripture is saying, but at the same time, I'm loving people enough for them to be safe to be safe, to have the conversation. So, but again, like you just said, uh, Jennifer, um, it is churches are splitting, and uh, people are hurting because they do have these feelings, these emotions that are undeniable. So, how do we how do we direct? Which also probably circles back to the idea that even though we we tend to think about churches and congregations and these affiliations as a separate entity, they're also human social entities, right? And just like we split in politics, just like we split in any ideas, right? Uh, uh, we also have different conceptions probably within our faiths as well. How do we reconcile those though? So. Well, so I, I actually wanna kind of circle back for just a second, because I think yeah. I inhabit kind of a unique space in this conversation as somebody who grew up as a queer man, right? Um, in a very conservative Southern Baptist background, spent some time kind of in a non-affiliated church before I was kind of invited to leave because of my sexual orientation, and then landed in kind of a Methodist space where I felt kind of much safer. Um, but even in that space, kind of inhabiting this kind of zone of demarcation, right? Where like I got people on one side, I got people on the other side, and I'm in the middle going, okay, I, I didn't, I, I'm tired of being part of a culture war, right? I'm just here to like live my life. Um, and, and what's really interesting to me is that um, the faith that I grew up in, um, kind of my granddaddy's faith, always talked about kind of every aspect of human behavior as through... Uh, through Christ, through the cross, as something that was kind of reconciled or something that was kind of washed and made anew. But that didn't exist for me, right? Like there was no reconciling my sexual orientation. There was discarding it. Um, and that creates kind of a, 
an unsavory option, right? Forcing somebody into celibacy, you're forcing them into a life in which they're incongruent. And I think that's actually what we're seeing in churches now, right? Is that we're kind of, they're feeling something being forced upon them. Uh, and I think that that kind of forced identification either direction creates kind of a threat. Uh, and our options mobilize along that threat, right? Fight back, which churches did for a long time, right? run away from each other, which is what we're seeing now, um, or freeze up and just kind of shut down, which we've also seen churches disaffiliate, kind of not survive it. Um, and I'm sure that that's true on other kind of uh, religious communities as well, but it, you know, I can only speak to the, to the one I'm most kind of familiar with. So, um, so I think that that's an important part of this conversation. It's just that like, you know, human sexuality is complicated as it, as it is, and as much as religion and faith try to reconcile it, there are certain things that have just been left out of the conversation. I mean, even the idea of God made man and woman, one out of every hundred babies is, if I remember this statistic, I, I may have gotten that wrong, so double check me, and if that's wrong, please remove it. But one out of every so many number of babies um, is born intersex with a, an, a, a genitalia that's not easily differentiated. Um, and oftentimes when doctors are in that situation, it's a lot easier to build a hole than a pole. And so they make a decision, and then years later, another decision is, is kind of being you know, made. Um, and I can't imagine being a parent in that situation, so I don't even know. But I do think it's far more complex than, than religion by itself is able to kind of reconcile. I think we have to be willing to look to nature and what we see there and the diversity that exists to, to be able to move forward. Uh, in a in a way that's inviting for all. I think that's so interesting because I can't remember the theologian that has um, written about this, but it's become very um, popular recently. This idea that when you read the the poetic language of 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 the creation one story in chapter one, you know that there, there was night and day and the the water and the the land. Um, this theologian expresses that that while that feels very binary, it's really the non-binary story of creation, that there's so much between night and day. There's dusk and there's dawn, and, and there's so much between land and sea. Um, and, and it was so fulfilling and, and helpful to read that because, again, I don't, I don't think anyone who wrote the Bible in my understanding, meant for it to be written literally because it was midrash. And so how do you do with, what do you do with all of that? But that non-binary understanding really allows us to live in the spectrum of God's creation, including the spectrum of human sexuality. And that's a new, that's hard. That's a, that's a nuance that, that, that makes us move and challenge into spaces we haven't been with ourselves or one another or with God, frankly. Don't give a preacher a mic. But um, <laughs> I, I am in that conversation. I'm in the same headspace that you all are. I, I remember when my late bishop, who's gone on to be with the Lord, um, I, I was always a renegade in my group. I always thought out of the box. I always thought I don't with. You don't, but that's. <laughs> Surprise. I, I always, always thought with an abundance of grace. I was the one in my church and community who would, my daughter uh, identified as LGBTQ uh, for a while. I embraced her, I may start crying, I embraced her with some other young girls who were kicked out of their homes because they were lesbian. And so I started a support group. I understood that what they were feeling, the, whether it was just emotional or not, it was still their feelings, and they still needed love. They still needed support. I had the conversation with my late bishop about the same thing you're talking about, hermaphrodites, people who are born with uh, uh, both sex organs or organs that can't be clearly identified. And you know, where's the grace for that? And I could only just go back to what I believe the scripture says that God is, he is love, period. He is love. That doesn't mean that anything goes, but the, the foundation of whatever I say, whatever I do has to be founded on love. And so in trying to reconcile that, I, I could only, since I didn't have the biological degree, <laughs> I could, yeah, I could only love you, you understand I can only love 
And, and, and so I find that to be the door that brings people into a safe space and then we can have a different conversation. But it's gotta be grace. I believe that when Adam and Eve sinned, now this is based on my theology, right. my teaching, yeah. when they sinned, the perfect plan was corrupted. And so now every human being born is corrupted. We have a nature that is not perfect. And so we all, again, sin and fall short. But the grace of God is there to not catch us in sin, but to catch us, to hold us, to be there for us when we sin. The way I see it sometimes is it feels like a parental role, right? It's a, it's a father, it's a mother, it's a, it's a figure is going to be there for you. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, it, it's not only about sexuality, right? When sin comes in, as, as understood by the different faiths, uh, when, when you deviate from that plan from the faith, there's a, there's a way to remediate it. And occasionally, what, what, which makes me think, why are, we, why are there some fixations about sex? And it drives me back to that conversation of like, it's awkward to have that conversation with our parents, right? So it's probably ha it's awkward having that conversation in that space as well. Well, I think part of it, so, you know, speaking from a social science perspective, right, one of the things that we promote, um, and I should be very clear, my field is very careful about who's allowed to identify as a sexual health educator and what credentialing is required. And the state of Florida in particular is one of the only states where the term sex therapist is regulated. Um, I am not any of those things, okay? I am somebody who aspires maybe one day to be willing to go do the graduate work that's required, but as of right now, I'm traumatized from grad school. Um, <laughs> so that being said, what I do know from the research I try to do, because I, I do try to keep up on these things because it is something that's very important to me, is that sexual health education, sex education in general, needs to start earlier than it does, right? We we often don't start having those conversations until it's actually already too late. Um, but I mean, fetuses in utero have been shown to have priapisms or erections, right? We are sexual beings from the day we are born uh, and talking and normalizing things that are pleasurable or painful or appropriate or inappropriate in certain contexts, um, not treating these things as shameful, I think is a foundational part, then it reduces the awkwardness mm -hmm. as the child gets older to be able to have conversations about the changes they're seeing, the attractions they're feeling, the things they're desiring. I mean, the number of, of young gay men that I've spoken to that are engaging in behaviors that are just straight up dangerous because they didn't have anybody to tell them, no, like that's not a safe thing to do, mm -hmm. um, it is, it's alarming at times. So which actually brings me to a religious family as well, right? How do uh, people who attend your congregation have, your have that conversation with you as faith leaders? And how can we reduce the awkwardness of those conversations as well? What, what has been your experience? I'm very curious about it. I remember <laughs> when my son had his first wet dream. I'm not gonna have four, I'm not calling names. But I wanted to go under the carpet because I knew a conversation had to be had. But in my culture, in the African-American community, that's not something we just freely talk about, you know? And don't get me talking about HIV and my age group and new cases, but it, 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 I find that, as you're saying, I don't know the age, the appropriate age. I know, you know, we got something going on in the community in the United States now about the don't say gay, no, don't say gay. yeah, all of that. But, but I, I know that is imp it is important to have the conversation. Um, when I think I would, I would say to be wise that it should be something the parents do when they feel it's appropriate for their children. Um, but I think it's definitely needed. Um, and then let's just talk about women my age. It's, it was taboo just to just talk about it. It's, it's supposed, it is sacred. Sex is a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. And, and so in our culture, a lot of times we uh, treated it as you don't talk about it. You don't, you know, discuss it. It's just 
for the man and the woman to talk about. But I went into marriage like, just get it over with. I'm a virgin. Let's do it now. Um, uh, you know, yeah, but because that's we didn't talk about it, we didn't have that conversation. Thinking of sexuality, I know there's some awkwardness around it as we we're trying to say how to reduce that awkwardness, but it's part of human life, right? It's it's just as you would teach a kid about street safety, look both sides before crossing the street, all these tools that you need for the rest of your life, how to tie your shoes, how to be safe with the food you eat, how to you know, make the best and, and, and make them a better person. That probably should also be a conversation at some point that could happen or has happened in, in your uh, places of faith as well. And again, probably audience would think about the, the big no-nos that are out there, but I, I want to start with the positive and how do you encourage um, healthy behaviors? How do you encourage uh, your your churchgoers or your, your congregation to actually engage in a fruitful, healthy life that will actually please our our higher beings up there. Do you have any experiences that you would like to share? For example, do you have do you have pre marriage? We do have pre marriage. We oh, our, we let our counseling center handle that. <laughs> um, no, but we also have in fourth and fifth grade. We do um, uh, created by me or created by God um, and made in the image of God. I can't remember. But basically, when I was growing up, it was called sex camp. I mean, where you went to Warren Willis, which is the Methodist. That is camp. so something a church would do. Call something sex camp, not. Really realizing no that we didn't we no, that was the behind the scenes oh, title okay. of it oh. that was oh. what all those kids um, don't worry we got a sex cafe yeah right but but parents come and they have conversation they have doctors and they have mental health counselors and pastors and talk about sexuality human sexuality they talk about you know um, both the biological understanding of it and then the spiritual and theological understanding of it and parents come and are a part of that conversation sometimes and they um um, it's beautiful. It's a really amazing thing that we do here in Florida for the Methodist Church. But I will say I've seen other denominations, the UU congregations and UCC congregations that do such a better job talking about human sexuality from, from birth to grave and really kind of those stages. And I think that um, we've been so indoctrinated in, in Western American Christianity that it's like, don't have sex until you're married and then, all, you know, keep your legs shut and be the good girl or be the good boy. And then all of a sudden, magically, magic will happen, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's harmful. And the whole purity culture that we went through in the in the 80s, I was a youth director in the 90s, and we were tried to I didn't, but we were forced to talk about true love weights and all of that, which is a lovely romantic, I don't know, I guess it is something, but it's just not real for our young people because they're made to then feel shamed about anything that happens out of that very, very narrow boundary. Um, and then they don't have anyone to talk about it. And so I think we have to do a better job. One of the things that we're starting to do is to have conversations in different groups. We're using Nadia Boltzweber's Shameless book that talks about a healthy sexual ethic and um, how do we how do we debunk something that is in scriptures? This, I mean, the Song of Songs is this beautiful, beautiful conversation about the fullness of, you know, whatever we want to relate it to, it's also about the fullness of sexuality is in there and we just we miss it we miss the mark do you think it's something that that the religious organizations in general have to find a way to move forward on and and what i mean by that is have to find a way to talk about it in in a way that's more balanced more open less stigmatizing and shameful because when we do frame it around this idea that it's not something that happens until your wedding night keep your legs you know closed don't don't talk about it um you know, I remember hearing very shameful messages around kind of normative sexual behaviors that adolescents engage in, such as masturbation, um, and it really kind of changes the way a person approaches their body. Um, and I think it does kind of, it gets passed down, right? Because then you've raised a generation who doesn't know how to talk about sex, and then they're expected to talk to their kids about sex, but nobody ever taught them how to do it. So I do think it's an important thing that churches figure out how to have conversations around, if nothing else, then to create the permission structure 
for families and other organizations to start having more converse, sorry, not churches, religious organizations in general, to create that permission structure. Well, and does it take away the power that is happening politically where politics is using religion to back these kind of harmful bills. Like if we if we would take back the power and begin to have those conversations and make them normative for people, um, and, and, and those conversations also, Daniel, uh, subjugate women horribly, oh, horribly. <laughs> um, but if we were to take back the power, maybe politicians couldn't use religion to make their way in the world. I Just a little I side note. <laughs> I wanted to add that, you know, my upbringing, I was a virgin, of course, when I got married, so was my, uh, the father of my children, my ex-husband. We were taught that our virginity was a beautiful gift, and so we weren't raised in shame or taught that it was shameful if you weren't a virgin, it was just that, okay, that gift is no longer. Um, But I agree that apart from being taught that it was beautiful, I wasn't given the lesson of what do I do on the wedding night, you know. I didn't have that sex education, you know. I just, you know, figure we'd figure it out, you know. Um, We did, of course. I have five kids to prove that. (laughs) But... But did some right. But 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 I agree. The conversation needs to be had in a way that again still makes that um, a beautiful act between a man and a woman. You know, we're in the real world who's supposed to be committed to each other for life. But I agree, the shame piece is there. It's prevalent. Uh, as well, uh, should someone not be a virgin, then you feel less than. But uh, the story and the message of grace is that everybody's important. It doesn't matter what you've done. Nobody's better than the next person. God's grace has made all of us whole. And so, but it, we need to find a way. Yeah, I think the other thing that's often missing from the conversation, even when you find religious organizations that are doing it right, um, right, I'm using air quotes, um, is there's no conversation around like pleasure and pain, right? Which is such an uh, like like integral part of a sexual sexual a sexual health life, healthy sexual life, right? Is enjoying it, right? Um, the number of clients that I see who you know when I talk to them, and I'm probably one of very few therapists in my office who intentionally ask at every intake about like sexual health. I always add, and do you have any concerns around pleasure or pain during sex? Because sometimes they think it's normal. Sometimes they're like not sure what's going on. Sometimes they're doing things that are contributing to pain, or they are like, why am I not enjoying it? And opening up that conversation, I think, is one of the ways to reduce the shame around it, to recognize like this is a pleasurable act when done kind of in a, in a proper context. I love in her book, Shameless, where she talks about, not able to, talks about um, the idea, the Greek word for salvation is sozos, which means wholeness, which is about whether you're a virgin or not a virgin, the idea of two people wholly, not fragments, but wholly in their individuals coming together for holiness. I think is a beautiful understanding, and and in it she wrote something that I had never I had never heard before, um, and I wrote it down because I wanted to make sure I got it correctly. But that um, Deborah Hirsch talks about it that the word the Hebrew word yada, which means to know, is used in Scripture both for sexual intercourse and to know God, and and it's the same it's beautiful it's intimacy it is that wholeness of people coming together in covenant relationship um, and God's a part of it but when we don't even read the scriptures and read it in the context of that we pull it we parse it apart and 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 then we become fragmented from the relationship with God that we're supposed to bring to a relationship with another so how can we translate then we have seen the needs the unmet needs of those conversations but i see also how how the congregations are actually moving forward to start having those conversations as as you were mentioning is uh, thinking outside the box and having those ideas or as you were mentioning uh 
about having those camps and having those conversations early on and involving parents, which is which I think it's also um, important to mention that they have a role in that spiritual bringing, but also there's more life happening around the kids, right? There's other aspects of socialization. So what other steps do we see that we can move towards in, in creating a healthy environment to reconcile sexuality? I think part of it is with um, creating sacred space um, and safe space, just to have conversations where people bring their full selves. Um, I think that's the beauty of what church is supposed to be originally. <laughs> um, and and we, we sort of have lost that in the especially 20th century religion. And I think that's what we're people are longing to get back to. Um, so especially with our youth, um, like we have our, in our youth program, we've found, we have a grant called Missing Voices Grant to create, how do you, how do you reach marginalized people um, in our youth ministries and, and creating safe and sacred space? And it's interesting because what we found in our church, what our youth discovered in working towards this project was, well, we actually have a sacred space. I mean, like, like LGBTQ youth feel very comfortable coming to our program. It's the adults that don't know how to talk to their kids. And so how do we create curriculum and how do we create, not just for parents, but for youth workers and pastors that they can use beyond our church that gives them that talks about how do we how do we look at scripture maybe differently how maybe we look at it from a language context or historical context to just help people have the choices that they can make um, and and be more open how do we have a dictionary of of all of these words all of these letters and abbreviations and so that Adults feel comfortable in the conversations because the kids know it. Mm -hmm. Our young people are fine. They really do understand it. They need someone who's an adult to talk to them about, okay, you have this wealth of knowledge. How do you harness it? You know, how do you how are you a good steward of it? Like like Cynthia was talking about. That makes me think of that joke always where the kid meets the parent and says, It's time to have the sex talk. <laughs> and the kid goes goes ahead and said, Okay, ask away. What do you want to know? <laughs> So the kids tend up tend to know, to they are around. They are they have way more resources. But some of, but some of the information they have is very dangerous. Correct. Like I mean, I, I don't correct. I, I had to explain to a, a a young man recently who was interested in experimenting um, with uh, anal douching that like you can't just use the same project a product that it was designed for a vagina. Like these are separate parts of the body. Like you need to talk to your pharmacist, right? Like they might have a lot of information, but sometimes the gaps, especially in queer health, is is very, very much missing. And I think part of it is because we have a voice missing from the conversation. Can, can I add along, you know, what we're, this topic that my generation, again, and um, African-American heterosexual women, faith-based women, again, um, it is not a comfortable conversation. However, um, Umberto knows that I am um, passionate about spreading the information and having the conversation that, listen, I know we teach abstinence, and abstinence works if you're abstinent. <laughs> if you're abstinent. If and only if, yeah. If you're abstinent. If and only and, if. And we, faith-based people, Christians, are having sex outside of marriage. I'm breaking the silence. And we need to be educated that, listen, there are consequences um, again, we are the new stats in HIV, yeah, because we're not having the conversation. As I was getting trained, one of the trainers told me that, you know, the stigma and the fear in the African-American faith-based community is that, you know, if we tell these women that, you know, to get tested or the men to get tested, what is it saying? That the men are down low, you know? Um, and, and then so the hierarchy of the male uh, dominance says, we don't want you to bring that into our congregation because you're gonna be like pointing the finger at our men and then that's gonna make things uncomfortable in the home. But again, the conversation has to be had to save lives and for um, these, these mothers to have the conversation with their daughters. I have 30 year olds with master's degrees when I mentioned this about 
HIV in the heterosexual community, they are like, oh my God, are you kidding? Because of the stigma, because of the fear, because of the lack of communication and information. And so I'm with everybody, you know, finding ways to uh, have that conversation. And me, I'm on this mission to have it one conversation at a time if I can to save lives and to inform that, you know, and this is what I say too, you know, we talk about as Christians, the Holy Spirit is supposed to keep us, but until then get a condom. (laughs) (laughs) Until he's your keeper, (laughs) until you have the power, keep your temple, keep your body from disease until you get stronger. Well, there was initiative at the city level to talk, to go into faith communities. It was a conversation that happened like a year ago. I think you probably know about it. And they were trying to, I I won't say who it is because I don't want to, I don't want to get anything wrong, but it was from the city. It was from officials to get into the faith communities to talk about this very thing. And there was a group of us on a Zoom call and I just started laughing. I'm like, I can't... Yes, we absolutely need to. But yes, then they're going to also have to say, why are you talking to us? You know, uppity white people, excuse me, um, because you're having affairs. (laughs) Obviously, there's something going on. Someone is and it is it's that whole I don't want to I don't want to let down my guard and be authentic. That's that back to that safe space of being actually be authentic and real. We don't want to do that in the church. And let me add this part while, while, you know, we're on the topic, HIV, my instructor said, well, Kinthia, here's, here's more information. Uh, it's not about a down low man all the time. It could be a man having an affair with another heterosexual woman who has HIV and doesn't know it because she's not tested. Well, and I'm, I was wondering if I could ask, because, you know, you talked about the kind of stereotype that exists around, like, a, a, a black woman who identifies as religious and, like, sex is we don't talk about it. We, we you know, be pure, be virgin, or whatever. Um, but I feel like the other force that I often end up talking with young black women about is the fetishization, yeah, fetishization, I'll get that word out, of black women and like the over-sexualization of black mm-hmm. bodies as well. And so I feel like it creates this, and, and I would love to hear from you because I am neither a woman nor black, about like that that duality because you're then confronted with two like opposing forces of sex is bad and, you know, umama. Uh, and I just don't know how one reconciles that, especially if you're not talking about it. The, the conversation about beauty and embracing your blackness and your body and your curves, that conversation is being had. But they're not getting the other side of the coin to say, well, if you're going to be sexy, mm-hmm. there's Here's your some toolbox, attraction. Right? Yeah, it's going to come with that and responsibility. They're not talking about the responsibility of those curves right. <laughs> and what you do with those curves. Those curves don't lie. Yeah. And so it's, it's like, again, and that's what put the danger in dangerous curves. Right. And, and, and it goes, which, which is so beautiful because it does go back to what you and I were saying at the very beginning about our understanding of our sexuality and who we are as humans it was all about our responsibility and our stewardship given to us by God in that beautiful story of love was, just do this and we'll live into the wholeness. And we were irresponsible and we weren't good stewards with that gift. And so it's so interesting because it comes back to God did give us both. (laughs) God gave us, here's the beauty, here's live into the beauty of who you are, live into the curves and everything else. Here's the responsibility that comes with it. Um, But we don't do that as a church. Which actually brings me to that idea of uh, that I have been not avoiding, but saving for last. There's that perspective that probably comes to mind, as I have mentioned a couple of times, that a lot of churches have that strict point of view of no-nos. These are the do's and these are the don'ts, and they're written in stone, and there's no happy middle, right? So we have seen that there's, for example, that binary and that fluidity uh, between two extremes. Um, What are... I guess my question would be along the lines of what are those tenets and how do you approach the do's and don'ts? Because at some point as good parents, as good families will tell you the rules of the game, right? If you're joining, if you're a member of this family, here's your curfew, here's how you behave. So I'm pretty sure churches and religious congregations will have those rules as well. How do we approach them in a loving way? As we have said, that is a, is a loving um, social 
structure. Well, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing can separate you. Principalities, uh, heights and depths, nothing can separate you from his love. However, again, and then there's another scripture that talks about uh, if one should fall from grace, God's hand is there extended again to catch you. Do's and don'ts are clear. They're black and white. You don't have sex if you're not married. Um, But we teach there is grace. If you do, again, it's not the unpardonable sin. It's not something that you can't get up from, you know, and, you know, you, 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 you go on, you move on. But we do teach that there's beauty in that covenant relationship between a man and woman, and that's the boundaries uh, uh, in marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the green light. Do whatever you want to do. Uh, the marriage bed is undefiled. It's holy, you know. Um, and again, but if you should fall, there is God's forgiveness. So it's not like you, you live the rest of your life with a, you know, the scarlet letter. And I love how you mention it because my approach here is not only to understand the do's and the don'ts from, from a religious point of view, but also to understand consequences of that. So there's there's probably, and, and I would love Daniel to pitch in if there's any mental health consequences that we're going to see with those do's and don'ts and the difficult reconciliating those reconciling those but I also want to point out that uh, we always try to give a positive spin as well Um, and I I love what you mentioned Kinthia about the idea of um, it's not a mortal thing it's not something that we cannot reconcile and and probably that message should get out there as well and I I would say it's interesting when I read scripture I don't actually see a don't against premarital sex Uh, There's lots of stories in scripture that I see where there is question about someone who is betrothed, like Mary, you know, could possibly have been stoned, but that's because it was a marital contract that was created by men. And so the actual do not have sex before marriage is something that we as, as, as humans believed that that was appropriate to create in religion. Um, I, I would say, and we in the Methodist Church don't necessarily have a lot of do's and don'ts except for what what is it that creates wholeness. And now, in again, it goes to our denomination. One of the things we're struggling with is it, it talks about all people are of sacred worth and human sexuality and our understanding, but it also talks about homosexuality. Um, and that I don't even want to talk about it because it's just painful. <laughs> and and it, it created a don't that wasn't there 50 years ago in our religious institution and so it's it's a harmful thing but we say it's about what is it that creates the wholeness of two people being fully whole and reconciled with god and and creating intimacy in that um and grace is and and that christ died for all sins it says died for the world and on good friday those sins were were and and our job is just to continue to live in the assurance of his grace and we're not really that concerned as Methodists about sin as much as I don't think other people are. So. And, and, and as I was mentioning before we started the <laughs> recording. Those who think it's a sin, uh, we're all like, but we know that we have assurance and forgiveness. And so we're moving on to Christian perfection, which is loving like God loves. And before we started the conversation, uh, the recording today, I was mentioning that I was actually, I went to a Methodist school and I do remember when we had our classes on religion and the the point of view that I learned in, in met, not being a Methodist myself was that if you knowingly know it's wrong and you insist in doing it, no matter what it is, no matter if it's sex, no matter if it's taking up something that is not yours, if you knowingly know that it's wrong and you insist in doing it, that's how we define sin. What's behind it? What's behind it is usually, and that is the greater sin, is it's usually about power or control or pride or those kinds of things, getting into Catholic and traditions of the seven deadly sins, which is the behind it, which is why I think sexuality gets harmed too, because we use sexuality as power and control and lust and things that see other people as objects and not beloved and definitely that brings probably shame a sense of non-belonging in the conversation and definitely there are some mental health aspects to that that probably you deal with in your in your everyday Daniel sure I was thinking and kind of reflecting on that and I think the challenge is when you set up a system around kind of do's and don'ts right you've you've created a system that is inherently black and white 
Um, and human beings, like the big five personality traits, like people who are more cognitively flexible are generally kind of more mentally fit and well. And so, you know, the, the thing I would encourage anybody engaging in these conversations around is to engage in them in a way that is kind of cognitively flexible, right? I always say, if you're yucking somebody's yum, then we've probably gone too far. That's that's kind of a, a boundary violation for me. I, I tend to think of conversations around s- sexual behaviors I see as separate from sexuality in terms of kind of harm reduction, right? What are the, what are the behaviors we're engaging in? What are the risks and benefits associated with those behaviors? Uh, and how do we ensure that we're promoting kind of human wellness and value and resiliency while diminishing the potentially harmful effects, right? Um, and so that's the kind of way I've always approached those. And that's probably how I would encourage others to have it as well, because you're right, when when shame is introduced to the equation, I, I haven't read anything yet that suggests that shame is a helpful emotion. Um, I like to differentiate guilt says I did something wrong, shame says I am wrong. And that kind of insidious belief, um, guilt I can correct, right? I did something, I stole your pen, okay, I need to give it back, I need to apologize, maybe I need to buy you a new pen, who knows. But I can take corrective actions and I can repair that. When I, as a kind of at a core level, am broken, right, then there is no correcting that. And that's why I started the conversation earlier around, you know, how we've framed sexual orientation, especially as as a gay man, in kind of a religious context. There is no reconciling that, right, for me, in a traditional context. And I think that that's the kind of things we need to look at is what are the, what are the kind of... Um, catch-22s we've created, what are the binaries we've created that are restricting people, how are we talking about this in a way that promotes wellness and wholeness and integrity versus how are we saying don't do that or do do that? Because I think that's the way to go in, in these conversations. The The mental health impacts of it on the other end are, are just going to be negative mm-hmm. all around. Definitely. And, and, and a constant message that I also keep seeing is providing that toolkit, right? Yes is this is the the general rule is you're not going to have sex before marriage but if you decide to do that right. so there's the the what if and then provide that toolkit to stay safe and uh, yeah it's, it's stay healthy i think that the 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 kind of place that the church could look if they were so willing is actually kink communities and kink culture right they consistently talk about safe sane and consensual mm-hmm right is this safe are we promoting kind of wellness and health and safety is it sane is everybody entering into it with a clear mind and knowing what they're getting themselves into are they under the influence of anything are they doing it because they're like reliving some kind of past trauma that they need to work through like why are we doing this what's the intent and then consensual is everybody on board and consent in that regard is a ongoing active process it's not just the absence of a no it's the presence of a continuous yes and i think that's a a community that actually has gotten very much right so do we have any thoughts or key takeaways for our listeners who are out there whether they're religious or not on that reconciliation of of religion and sexuality we have tried to give it a positive spin we have tried to see how we can as humans congregate and love each other what what final thoughts or final messages come to our listeners um, I would say, as a, as a person who represents a faith community, um, that we in the faith community have a responsibility to say, to apologize, because we've created what has been, in my raising, raising a, a child who's LGBTQ and working through the denominational structures and listening to the harm that's been created for everyone around sexuality and divorce and marriage. And we just, I just want to say apology. I think we have some apologizing to do because we've created some human structures based on shame. And I would even go as far to say that sometimes some of our leadership and religion have profited from that. And, and done a lot of harm. And so I think it starts with actually being able to apologize and say, we're sorry, and we need to do better. And we need to stop hiding and pretending and being afraid of talking about uncomfortable things 
that maybe if we were willing to talk about uncomfortable things and talk about the divine spark of creativity that was given to us at the beginning of creation versus you know original sin versus original creativity maybe we would we would be a little bit more whole as a community and i i think a lot of what i see happening in our world today finds its way back to the doorstep of the church and so we have some work to do in reconciling what's going on in the world by starting to be more healthy and whole i agree with that jennifer um i remember last year or pulse anniversary i was invited on a forum josh I can't think of it. Uh, yeah, with One Orlando Alliance mm-hmm. to, with um, more people of the clergy. And one of the first things I said um, on that platform was I gave an apology to my daughter and to another young man, I won't call his name, who had experienced church hurt uh, because of their lifestyle. And I do believe the church needs to reconcile that. And how do we minister to those, whether our beliefs is that it's sin or whatever, but we still need to reconcile the fact that these are individuals that God died for, Christ died for, gave his life for, and uh, would do it again, you know. And how do we reconcile to uh, that conversation, our behavior, to make them, I want to say make them, or to allow them to be safe just as anybody else who's we are all broken who's broken or and and i know many may not see it as brokenness but i believe we all are broken but but i agree that there are some apologies need to be made some reconciliation with this issue of of whether it's heterosexual homosexual sex or whatever we need to find a way to communicate god's love his forgiveness and hope for all humanity so yeah good sex bad sex safe sex you know whatever kind of sex and and i would end by just saying god loves you no matter what no matter who you are no matter what kind of sex you're having god loves you you know he created us all so. well i don't want to say all that <laughs> i think the thing i would encourage people to reflect on um is is to look carefully and try to deconstruct whatever the message is that we're being given, right? So as an example, right, creating a culture where black women, young black women are not allowed to talk about sexual sexuality, right? My question to them is, who's benefiting from that message? Because it doesn't sound like it's young black women, um, right? If, if young gay men, young queer women, whoever it is, right, is being given a message that says X, Y, or Z, right? Even within, you know, kind of the patriarchal, cultures of the church as it's previously existed if we're saying women need to be kind of virginal and but boys can be boys like who's right who's benefiting from this message and who's not and what would it look like what would a different message that allows kind of more equal distribution of those benefits look like right how would it look to flip it on its head um would we tolerate that and if not how come if it doesn't work in the reverse why does it work this direction i think that that deconstruction is actually a really important part of kind of owning and developing our own sexual ethic and i would say daniel that's pretty much what jesus said the entire time he was on earth (laughs) who is this benefiting and let's flip it because God had something else in store. He would say, forgive them for they know not what they do, as he said on the cross, you know. Imagine I just moved to town. So what resources are available for those uh, listeners who would be interested in communicating with you or contacting you or your organization or any other religious organization? I know there's a lot of interfaith associations and, and resources out there. I think you mentioned Josh Bell um, with One One Orlando Alliance, um, who is a Methodist pastor, and yeah, <laughs> um, speaking of the denomination, um, I think there's lots of churches too. I think there's a lot of faith organizations in our community that are very diverse in their understanding, and I think a lot of us are trying to work together, especially since Pulse, to try and get it right. Great. And if if our listeners are interested in knowing more or visiting your uh, congregation or your space, how can they stay in contact with you? We are in the Dr. Phillips area, and we're also online. You can find us at 
at Facebook or Instagram. And then our website is saint.lukes.org, st.lukes.org, and a place to welcome all. So we love to have people. Wonderful. Uh, we will leave that link in our uh, website as well. So our listeners who didn't have pen and paper at hand can uh, refer to it. I was going to say just contact Pastor Kay at Judah Kingdom Life Ministries. or We're on Facebook, but email me at Judah jklm at gbell.com if you have any questions and daniel i know you have services typically geared towards our ucf community yeah so i uh, i work full-time at ucf so um any students that are seeking services or, or wanting to kind of have a conversation or a follow-up can reach out to me or our office um at our website caps.sdes.ucf.edu or our phone number 407-823-2811. I'm also uh, on, I have a small private practice as do many of my fellow kind of therapists uh, and I'm pretty easy to find just via Google search um, through Psychology Today, so. <laughs> For the non-UCF students then they can stay in touch as well because I'm pretty sure this is just the beginning of in, uh, we hope it will be the beginning of interesting conversations to be had. So I thank my panelists today for joining this podcast and for our listeners out there, stay in touch because there's more interesting episodes and conversations to be had on human sexuality.